innovative, often duplicated. When enough people get on the trend, I elevate it, make it way harder for them to follow what I take. It hard to swallow like a lozenger lodged in your trachea. Goodness gracious, bruh, I can never make this up. So just take your stuff, rake it up, and take the bus. Never fake the funk, you painted skunks. You played enough, I'm lifting bars to outer space, so the weight is up. Fight, fight. I first became aware of Jose Tufi Kairos from Robert Drysdale. Aside from being one of the best jiu-jitsu athletes ever, Drysdale is a huge fan of history. When I interviewed him for this podcast, he mentioned that Kairos was one of the only legitimate academic researchers doing scholarship about the origins and development of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Obviously, I was super interested. This led to two fascinating conversations with Dr. Jose Tufi Kairos, a historian and professor at Brazil's Federal Institute of Santa Catarina. Because we had to do the conversations via Skype, the audio quality isn't what you might be used to, and I apologize for that. I can't wait to get him back to the home studio. But the content and what you're about to hear hopefully more than makes up for that. Kairos's father was involved in Brazilian judo for decades, and the author himself trained with Carlson Gracie, which is something you'll hear all about. You'll also hear what he thinks the biggest misconceptions about jiu-jitsu history are. You'll hear about who the first Japanese person to teach Kodokan Judo in Brazil was, and the first woman to train Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. You'll hear what the differences were between what Jigoro Kano called Judo at the time and the Jiu-Jitsu that was taught by Mitsuyo Maeda, who, by the way, wasn't the only one using the name Count Koma at the time. You'll hear the importance of the Brazilian Navy in promoting Jiu-Jitsu, and how Maeda taught the Brazilian Navy in the Amazon, including a man named Luis Soto. You'll hear about the contributions of men like Gio Amori and Takeo Yano to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And most fascinating to me, you'll hear about how the transition from the monarchy in Brazil to the old republic, to the dictatorship, to the corporate authoritarian regime that was called the Estado Novo affected Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Especially, there's a harrowing story about when Hobson Gracie and Carlson Gracie were arrested by the Brazilian military government and how they only got out with the help of Helio Gracie and Helio Vigio. You'll also hear Jose Tufi Kairos's view on how jiu-jitsu became a global martial art, which is a pretty cool take that I want to give you a preview of right now. Brazilian jiu-jitsu is, is, is more like a collective process uh, in the making that there's a lot of people. Again, you, you ask me if there are people that are worth mentioning. There's a lot of people out there. They, they are also very important in the process. There is no one single a uh, person that is responsible for uh, what Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has become all the time. It's a, it's a collective. There's a lot of work of different people that usually they, they, they will be all, always a, a no in the process. It's a collective. It's a collective process. The make of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is a work of so many people, right? And it's still going on. It's a work in progress. During the next few minutes, you'll also hear about how Kairos and the man who introduced me to him, Robert Drysdale, are now working together on Closed Guard, the movie, a documentary about the history of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. If you want to learn more, we'll post Kairos's dissertation on our website. If you find some of the references in the podcast a little bit incomplete or you want to learn more about some of that stuff, the dissertation is going to fill in those gaps, believe me. So we'll have our full featured interview in just a moment, but first we have to tell you about how to get a hold of us. So we finally moved out to Bellingham, Washington permanently, so let us know who on the West Coast you'd most like to hear on the show. 
We'll also be attending the IBJJF World Championships next week, so if there's anyone there you've got questions for, let me know that as well. You can email jeff at dirtywhitebelt.com or lordis at dirtywhitebelt.com to get in touch with us. You can also follow us on Instagram at Dirty White Belt or on Facebook at Cageside Radio. And if you see us at the Worlds, please do come say hey. One more thing. Dirty White Belt Radio is going to continue to cover Brazilian jiu-jitsu history and culture all over the world, especially in North Carolina, where Lourdes still is, and in the Northwest, where I am. But if you want to keep track of our new Northwest jiu-jitsu adventure, you can follow us on the Bellingham BJJ social media accounts that I've created. You can check out Bellingham BJJ on Instagram and Bellingham BJJ on Twitter. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash Bellingham BJJ. We should have some really cool announcements soon. Thanks for all your support. We'll come back after this break with our interview with Jose Tufi Kairos. U.S. Grappling Greensboro went great. I refereed the event and had a tremendous time, even though I got some funny looks for bringing Chelsea Kurtzman a giant framed art piece for her birthday while walking in in my ref shirt. But don't worry, whether you're a referee, whether you're a competitor, whether you're a coach, whether you just like watching the best run tournaments around, there are more opportunities to come and compete. Columbia, South Carolina, June 30th. You can register online at usgrappling.com. Just a couple of weeks after that, Charlotte, July 14th. There's also a Charlotte referee training. So if you're a purple belt or above and want to become a certified ref, you can check that out as well. That's then just a couple weeks after that, they return to Richmond, Virginia, July 28th. Richmond is always one of the biggest and best tournaments. So you get all the terrific schools from Richmond, Revolution BJJ, Upstream BJJ, Richmond BJJ, as well as the D.C. folks from the DMV and all of North Carolina coming up to compete. You can register online at usgrappling.com to save yourself some money. It's a tremendous deal. I think it's about 85 bucks if you pre-register. So go to usgrappling.com and be sure to tell them we sent you. So what, what got you interested in writing a dissertation about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and history? Hey Jeff, uh, it's a long story, man. It's completely by accident. Uh, I was uh, Originally, my field of expertise in history is African diaspora, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's why I went to Canada, to Toronto, New York University, to write a PhD dissertation on African diaspora in Brazil, right? Mm-hmm. But during the process... A lot of things happen, and I have to change the subject. It, 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 it took me a while to decide because, it's, you know, it's not easy to write things uh, when the things become so personal. Mm. And my family has uh, had a long story in martial arts in Brazil, my father, my brother, and stuff. So I, initially, I didn't find myself comfortable writing about the Gracies and BJJ. That's the truth. Took me a while to think and finally decide. Okay, let's go. Because one thing you write about people is dead for a long time. <laughs> Another thing is write about people. There's people around, right, around you, and some of them I, I, I know personally. So, and I knew for the beginning at some point I will like find stuff that are not exactly nice about them. Or that's contradict the, I, I call, like the Gracie invented tradition. Mm-hmm. That's, that's attempt to give Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu uh, a narrative. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a completely invented, you know, so many things are missing. And so finally I decide, okay, let's do it, right? 
and then I started to write my dissertation and doing research in Brazil, doing research in America, doing research everywhere, right? Using archives back in Scotland, using archives in Japan, everything. So what has the response to your dissertation been like? I know you're interviewed for the Closed Guard movie that yes. Robert Drysdale's doing. Yes, it's true. Uh, first, you know, I don't know, I, I think I, I, I haven't told you yet, that I sold the, the film rights of my dissertation to, to become a movie, right? It's coming up, I don't know when, because it's not longer in my hand, right? I sold the film rights uh, a while ago, like a few years ago, for... Uh, a Brazilian movie director based in L.A. The guy is famous, probably, you know, that he made uh, uh, Elite Squad, uh, Robocop, the new version, Narcos in Netflix, uh, Jose Padilla, right? So Jose Padilla, he bought the film rights of my dissertation. I think it was 2013, 2014. And the last time I heard from him, he is working with Rickson Gracie. So I don't know exactly how that we work on my dissertation and Rickson Gracie's stories. I don't know how, but it's not my blog on writing. <laughs> yeah, you can let other people work that out. Yeah, okay. And close God Robert Drysdale. You know, I have to tell you that Drysdale just show up and then we are in contact, you know, for weeks and weeks and then I was a bit, you know, was a thick when I decided to return to Brazil, I'm still in process to readapt to Brazil, right? Mm-hmm. I spent like 12 years in North America. So it's not an easy process to come back to Brazil, you know. So I just, um, I, I didn't give so much attention to my dissertation in the last years. And then, you know, come up with those drives, they just uh, show up and say, well, let's shoot this uh, uh, documentary, Close Guard and stuff, blah, blah, blah. He also loves the history of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So now it's time. That's why I told you, and finally, well, I decided to really try to publish my dissertation in book form. Of course, in English, right? Well, uh, one of the questions we got from listeners was, you need to tell him to put this in book form. And so uh, so they'll be excited to hear <laughs> yeah. that something like that is something you're open to. So uh, I'm curious, in your research, you mentioned – what is the biggest misconception that you think most people have about early Brazilian jiu-jitsu history? Oh, there are many. But let's start from the beginning, right? First, uh, this nature is a very – nature surrounding counter of the Gracies and Mitsumaeda in the Amazon. It's a very peculiar uh, circumstance, right, right? That you found the Gracies and the circles, work in the circles, right? Got some Gracies uh, owner. So like has like a, a partnership in the local circles and he already managed the wrestlers, you know, in the Amazon. And the circumstance that he got some the father of Elio and Carlos met this guy, this uh, Kodokan black belt, Maeda, was traveling like a drifter uh, uh, traveling around the world, right? And then he decided to set out on the Amazon after, let's say, well, uh, during the, the, the First World War. So uh, it's not, it's, it's, a, it's an encounter that two men in the Amazon, right? And then, the, the, of course, the, the, the way Carlos Gracie learned uh, uh, 
jiu-jitsu is, is very also very peculiar but if you don't understand these beginnings you can't figure out what happened <laughs> after that mm-hmm. afterwards right this is very this is very important to understand that um, may be an unusual beginning this encounter what happened uh how long carlos gracie really uh, uh trained under maeda if he did mm-hmm. right there's a lot of questions about that too how long and uh, what what happened afterwards because maeda is not the only in the story i'm very interested in the early japanese because maeda as you mentioned was traveling around with other kodokan black belts and yes. do we know with any certainty who the first japanese person to teach jiu-jitsu or kodokan judo uh in in brazil was do we do we know that yes yes well i'm very <laughs> i'm very very uh, very careful about this because there is the documentary Robert Wright, the documentary is uh, hopefully coming coming out in the end of the, the year. There's a lot of new stuff there, but so we agree that I'm not mm. open, you know, and not talk about the, all the scovers. But there's a thing is my dissertation that I feel comfortable to, 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 to talk about. I mentioned one guy. I think the first guy ever coming to Brazil to, to teach, like a martial artist. Was one guy that teach in the end of the eighty-eight in the end of the nineteenth century, mm-hmm. right? That's what Brazil was a monarchy, right? Mm-hmm. Brazil, <laughs> there is an emperor in Brazil, and the emperor, uh, think, uh, apparently, apparently he hired a Japanese martial arts to teach his bodyguards jujitsu. Right. I think it's, it's, my, it's in my dissertation, if I can remember properly, 1888, 1887. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so that guy, what they call acrobat, it's very common back then called acrobat, because using the Japanese martial artists, they also work in the circle, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's, uh, it's the manji, I don't know the, the full name, is in, in my dissertation, he was the first guy ever, mm-hmm. as long as far it goes with the historical records, that would be the first one. So yeah. you mentioned when Maeda starts his touring with some other black belts, Maeda is not even the only person that uses the the pseudonym Count Coma. One of the other guys, at least Satoshi, I think, does the same thing. And I'm wondering, when we say judo and we say jujitsu, it's clear that uh, Kano Jigoro did not support professional fighting. And so I want to talk about terminology for a second. Like, what at the time is the difference between what was called Kodokan Judo and what was called Jiu-Jitsu? Was there a difference in techniques, really? Or was it just like a political thing that guys used to say, uh, no, Master Kano, we're not using your Judo, even though we're professionally fighting? Look, uh, Judo uh, was, let's say, created by Kano Jigoro as one school among hundreds of schools of jiu-jitsu back in Japan. Let's say the judo or kano jiu-jitsu, mm-hmm. or they also call, right, appears to be a more modern, a modernized style of, of the traditional jiu-jitsu. He created kano as a, you know, as a university professor, a scholar and stuff, and he tried to create something new, uh, let's say more sports-like, kind of uh, of jiu-jitsu 
is following the trend. We talk about late 19th century. The sports are becoming a big thing everywhere. So Kano create this new style, but uh, getting techniques from different schools of uh, or traditional jiu-jitsu, right? And then they use, I think, both terms. Judo was something that is very new, and then they use randomly judo, uh, kano, jiu-jitsu, or, or jiu-jitsu. But the point is, why Maeda, I think that's the question, right? Why Maeda stopped stop talking about judo and start only using this uh, called generic label, jiu-jitsu? Because jiu-jitsu could be any kind of, uh, any, any school among hundreds of schools, right? Using judo, you are directly related to Kano Shigoro, right? I think like other uh, Kodokan black belts at the time that are traveling in the West, Maeda wasn't the only one. He was just one among so many others traveling. At the point that become clear that Maeda had to fight in circles, fight fighting for money, that something happened, right? That is very is is clear that the the belt promotion stopped at some point. The belt promotion just stopped, not only for Maeda but for others martial artists like the Kodoka. They just stopped around you know, like 11, 9, 12, precisely when Maeda was uh, touring in Mexico. Around that time, the belt promotion just stopped. He only resumed 17 years later, <laughs> right, until his death in 1941. So it's clear that something happens. Of course, the news, they travel very slowly in time. You know, I think the uh, Kodokan headquarters in Tokyo take uh, some time, take a while to really to, to know, you know, that they get acquainted or that they, they, they know what's going on. Oh, there are Kodokan black belts uh, doing prize fighting and stuff. And the time they, they learn about it, they stop the wrecking belt. Is 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 to me seems to be clear. Also, try to just dig in deeper in the Japanese mind. I think he might that out of respect for Kano. Mm-hmm. He stopped using this judo, right? Because there's this judo around in the news, and then suddenly stop, right? Suddenly stop using judo. No more, no longer judo, jiu-jitsu. Out of respect, because using jiu-jitsu, well, this is generic. It can be affiliate or, or any any school of jiu-jitsu in Japan. Not, and not compromising, I guess, Kano reputation or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? That makes perfect sense. And, you know, and as you write in your dissertation, it's clear that Maeda was not interested in providing a belt lineage of Kodokan Judo in Brazil. And, yes. and that's really noteworthy. And so you, you write in your dissertation, students like Carlos Gracie learned an eclectic program that mixed Judo with wrestling. And so I'm wondering, mm-hmm. do you think Maeda was intending to teach his own sort of brand of stuff? Was this stuff he picked up along the way? Uh, was he intending to train prize fighters? that Maeda was traveling and fighting wrestlers and doing in fighting prize fighting contests and stuff since I think if I remember correctly around 1905 right and when he met the Grace in the Amazon is around the time of 
right? They say, well, yeah, he's doing like pure Kodokan Judo or Jiu-Jitsu, right? He's fighting like freestyles, uh, freestyle fights with, uh, with everything, right? There's no, no, no limits, it's not. So, of course, I, I think Maeda was along the way incorporating new things, mm-hmm. right? And I think at some point he passed on his students, well, that techniques, right? That's a combination of techniques that we call today mixed martial arts or something, right? <laughs> that makes perfect sense to me. And, yeah. and keeping, in keeping with like some of these early days, you mentioned that it's unclear exactly how much Carlos Gracie trained with a Count Coma, that it couldn't – they, they lived in the same area for about three years. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm curious it's about – it's a Pandora box. <laughs> <laughs> well, well where, what I'm curious about is later you talk about Donato Pairistos Hayes, who also apparently trained at least a little bit with Maeda, and then yes. becomes yes. allegedly like, uh, well, he and, and Donato becomes the head of the first Gracie dojo that they establish. Yes. And True. So, and so the conclusions that you come to, like eventually they leave, you know, th- there's a split. And you write in your dissertation, Donato's brief direction of the Gracie Dojo suggests once the Gracies realized he had exaggerated his jiu-jitsu credentials, they terminated the partnership. And so I'm curious, what, what, what do you base that on? Is, like, is there evidence that Donato Pairistos Hayes didn't train with Maeda as much? Or what, what do you, what, where does that conclusion come from? You know, Jeff, uh, uh, at some point today things are different. When I start doing research and jiu-jitsu, there are almost nothing there. There's just uh, maybe a handful of guys doing his search. One who just mentioned Roberto Pedreira. I don't know what, whatever his name, real name <laughs> is. <laughs> I find Pedreira great. <laughs> but I think it's not uh, his real name, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not like, the, 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 the whole information that is coming up today, there's a lot of people out there. You have more newspapers uh, from that time uh, on the internet today, available in the archives in digital form, to to try to reconstruct the, the things as more close that we uh, what exactly happened. We know today there are at least two guys, two guys very important. They're they're fundamental to understand the Carlos Grace apprenticeship uh, uh, in the Amazon. One is Donato and another guy is Jacinto Fell. Jacinto Fell. Those guys, in fact, they are like graduate students of Maeda and the Amazon. Perhaps the most, the two most important students of Maeda, not Carlos Grace. <laughs> That's amazing. Like, you know, the, the Grace narrative, the, the claims. No. The, 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 probably the two most important are Jacinto Ferro, one guy is, is briefly mentioned by the Graces, mm-hmm. right? And he was the one, I think he was the number one student, some kind, kind of something very close that might, might be a black belt mm-hmm. of Maeda and the Amazon, that guy. And also Donato. So I think the Carlos acquaintance with Donato come from the Amazon, of course. And then Donato showed up in Rio de Janeiro, like in the beginning of the, the, the 1930s. And for some reason that I don't know, they have a disagreement, they're an estrangement. Mm-hmm. But, but yes, it's true. Uh, Donato was the one, the, the head of the dojo, not the graces. 
It's not even called Gracie's Dojo. It's Carioca Gym. Well, you call Dojo, you call Academy because they invented this thing about the Academy, but it's a gym. It's a Carioca. Carioca is people who were born in Rio de Janeiro, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Carioca Gym or Carioca Dojo, mm-hmm. head by Donato Pires dos Reis, not Carlos Gracie. Let me tell you a true story of customer service from Cageside Fight Company at cageside.com. So as most of you know, I'm about to move across the country to Bellingham, Washington, and I might start teaching jiu-jitsu out there. So I had shown Boomer from Cageside the logo that I'm working with, which is a pretty cool logo involving the classic jiu-jitsu triangle, as well as some fire, because there's a big mountain over there that's an inactive volcano. So unbeknownst to me, Boomer from Cageside used his custom embroidery machine to create a rash guard, a couple of hats, a pair of shorts with this logo on it. And let me tell you, they look sick. I tell you that story for two reasons. First of all, to tell you the kind of customer service and personal attention that you will get if you go to cageside.com or check out their warehouse at 124 Lotta Road in Durham, North Carolina. And second, to tell you that they have this custom embroidery machine that can do things that make your artwork look beautiful. So I want to thank Boomer. I want to thank everybody from Cageside for helping me out and making a great experience in North Carolina. If you are interested in apparel for your fight shop or just for yourself personally, check out cageside.com. So we know a little bit about what happens to Donato in your dissertation and that he ends up actually allegedly training a Gracie opponent. What happens? Yes. So what happens to him and what happens to Jacinto? Well, this again, I, 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 want, to, I want to find explanation for that. That's some question that I ask myself. Well, well, if Carlos Gracie wasn't the only one, right, come from the Amazon, with that kind of knowledge, right, martial arts under Maeda, what about the others? What happened to the others? It's <laughs> a logical question. And then, for some reason, I know that Jacinto came to Rio later on, and Donato was around. But for some reason, that's, again, my only explanation for that. First, is, again, so you have to go to the Gracie mindset to understand a bit how their agents, their, well, willpower, that's the thing is the merit of the graces, and also how they, they succeeded, how they could, uh, right in the beginning, we, we live in Brazil back in the 1930s, a fierce dictatorship, right? And the graces, in the very beginning, they are some kind, they are connected to this dictator, uh, this authoritarian regime in Brazil. That's why you see the Gracies from the beginning of the 1930s when start this authoritarian regime teaching, for example, for a special uh, corps of bodyguards, jiu-jitsu. It's not Donato, it's not Jacinto, it's the Gracies. But what explains that is the Gracies' social connections, right? That's explained who are the Gracies. Then you have to go back to understand who are the Gracies to understand why they become, you know, they like, they take this almost near monopoly of jiu-jitsu teaching and remains on their hands for the entire last century. It's amazing because the Gracies, they find a niche teaching the upper class in Brazil.
Brazil because the Gracies are the family of falling aristocrats, right? They have, but they, they kept the social networks and they are very close to the regime and the regime protect them and the, the regime promote them, right? Unlike the others. And this is a, a really interesting point, and one of the most fascinating parts of your dissertation is about how the Brazilian military gets involved. And one guy I wanted to ask you about definitively was Luis Soto, who was a Navy officer and also a former Maeda student who wasn't sympathetic to the Gracies. He actually tra- was in Yano's corner during his fight with George Gracie. And uh, Carlos actually acknowledges Commander Soto's profound jiu-jitsu knowledge, and that's a direct quote. And so I'm wondering what what became of Luis Soto? He trained directly under Maeda, was a part of the Navy that was really important in backing jiu-jitsu, but I don't know a lot about him or what became of him. Well, Navy is involved with jiu- Japanese jiu-jitsu since the early 20th century. If you check in my dissertation, and I think the first chapter, right, that is uh, the, the Navy in Brazil, the military, it was the ones who brought the, the, the first instructor of uh, jiu-jitsu to teach the, the Navy cadets. Right, so the, 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 the fight with the capoeira, remember mm-hmm. <laughs> that I described the fight between the uh, oh, what's the name of the guy? Oh, uh, Syriaco? Yes, yes, yes. And, and that, that's a, that's I don't want to distract you, but fa- that's another fascinating thing to me that the capoeira folks end up defending the monarchy and they get a bad reputation as like, you know, against the old republic, which is, is a super interesting yes, thing. Yes, yes. In the transition from monarchy to republic in Brazil, Capoeira was caught up in this political dispute, right? And then Capoeira became associated with the, the old regime, the monarchy. That's why, of course, it's almost, it's not only political, it's also racial stuff there, but because Capoeira was brought away blacks, and then, well, uh, Capoeira became some kind of curse martial arts because of uh, 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 by blacks and associated with the fallen, the, the, the old regime. So we have to want to distance themselves from, from Capoeira, right? And then instead, they try to promote it like uh, global trends or modern trends as perceptive by the Brazilian military. And the Jiu-Jitsu was the one especially after the victory of Japanese over the Russian in, in, in the war, 1904, 1905. So Japan became like, oh, well, what these guys are doing, uh, especially for the Brazilian politicians, seeing uh, Japan as an example for Brazil. Japan was the country with tradition, a monarchy, emperor, make this transition to modernity. And they are doing a good job, right? They they, feed, they beat the Russians. Was the first Asian country in the modern times defeating uh, a, a West power, like right? a European country, right? So for the, the Navy, that's became the Jiu-Jitsu was among among that uh, things in Japan as a school of physical education, right? Mm-hmm. That's something I was promoting at the time: sports, health. Right, a lot of stuff, and also the martial, this martial mindset and things. That's why the Navy promote Japanese Jiu-Jitsu since the early, early 20th century. So it's not by accident that Maeda uh, he teach to the Navy in Amazon too. There is a, a big base of the, the base of Navy base in, in the Amazon, mm-hmm. in Belém, or you know, and then uh, Yano 
uh, my the, all those guys did it to, to, to the Navy. Since the early 20th century, also in the 1920s and 1930s, that's why Commando, uh, Commander De Soto, right? Yeah. He was among uh, the students uh, that really trained under Maeda. Especially when Maeda, I think, he stopped, uh, like, shut down his gym or something and became more involved in Japanese immigration, the Amazon. I, I also uh, teaching Jiu-Jitsu in the military in the Amazon. So let's say uh, the commander, the Soto, he, I think, he knows everything, right, about what happened back in the Amazon. He knows the graces, and he knows that the graces credentials, they are not exactly very solid, right, <laughs> considering, you know, the, the training under Maeda. Mm-hmm. That's something there. That I tried to promote uh, the Japanese. He tried to promote the Japanese against the graces, right? Yeah, and ends up cornering Yano in a fight against George. One interesting yes. thing too, I think Yano is a guy who doesn't get enough credit in terms of his contributions to jiu-jitsu, and I know that uh, Gibson Saw is a black belt out here whose father, Francisco Saw, is a red belt, and he counts Yano among, you know, in his lineage. And so I'm wondering what you can tell us about uh, some of his contributions uh, to Brazilian jiu-jitsu. No, it's amazing because Yano is actually one, one guy that uh, nearly wiped out from the history, but he was instrumental, very instrumental, because Yano traveling around Brazil, teaching uh, jiu-jitsu or judo, uh, right, and uh, promoting jiu-jitsu and judo, creates local federations, right, and he was in Minas Gerais, in Rio de Janeiro, in Sao Paulo, in the South, everywhere. The two Japanese, they're very important back then, uh, Yano and another guy called Joe Amori. Joe mm. Amori is another. You know, there's so, so many things about Omori coming out in the documentary Closed Door. That Omori, there's a two job. Uh, uh, now I, I, I used to say that there are, is, the, the Maeda is not the only Japanese in the story. There are at least two more Japanese. Right? Omori and Yano, they're very important, especially the Gracie's beginnings in, back in Sao Paulo, when they reportedly training under Omori. Omori taught a lot of stuff for them, right, especially for Carlos Gracie and George Gracie mm-hmm. in Sao Paulo, right? The first the first uh, fights, there is a transi- transition between the, the Carlos Gracie apprenticeship in the Amazon that remain obscure, mysterious, in the entire 1920s until they, you know, they, they, they go to Rio in 1930s. But in this, this gap, there is Omori there, right? I, they, they learn a lot of stuff from Omori and Yano too, mm-hmm. right? Because Yano, they, well, they're fighting sometimes, you know, in the public, but they, they, they have a very close relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, behind the scenes, let's say, right? And uh, George, for example, has a long, long, long relationship with Omori and Yano. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, those guys are extremely important to this early beginnings, this formation, let's say the formation, the, 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 these years of the beginning, our definition of styles and everything that I also mentioned in the in the the option for ground combat and everything, right? That there's a fortune in that clash 
companies, but also they clash, but they have they have a, a very a very close relationship behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, this is a great opportunity for me to encourage people to follow the Closed Guard the Movie Instagram because they just posted a great photo, a classic historical photo of Carlos Gracie with Gio Amori. And, yes, and yes. so so there's re- really fascinating <laughs> stuff coming out on the Instagram right now. So talking, uh, switching gears just a little bit, you mentioned a lot about Brazilian political history and the transition from the monarchy to the old republic to the dictatorship to the Estado Novo. And w- one thing that I'm very interested in uh, related to the great – You clearly did your homework. Well, I – I, I loved your dissertation. I mean, I, it was fascinating. And, like, because I think a lot of us that love jujitsu and, like, have a vague idea of Brazilian history don't really understand how the major events in Bra- Brazilian political history inform uh, the development of jujitsu, like Japanese immigration to Brazil. You talk about that in a fascinating uh, uh, passage. But, like, the, I want to talk about women for a second because, so, one of the, a famous thing that we hear about a lot is that um, Carlos Gracie is seeking opponents to challenge and gets in a dispute with Manuel Rufino dos Santos, this local wrestler, who apparently also took jiu-jitsu lessons with Donato Pérez dos Heix. But um, Carlos loses the fight, although the Gracies concess the result, and this rivalry continues to percolate, and there's a violent street fight where Carlos Gracie, Elio Gracie, and George Gracie are arrested and charged with violent physical assault. Now, what I find really interesting about this, you know, and this is not itself noteworthy. There are lots of street fights at the time. But Vargas pardons them after a bunch of old aristocrats, of military officers, of politicians and journalists and even feminists urge them to pardon him. And so specifically, I'm interested in the two women who signed this letter urging the Brazilian government to pardon them. One is Berta Lutz, who is a famous Brazilian feminist, and the other is Rosalina Coelho Lisboa, who was born in Portugal but is a writer and a self-described feminist with fascist leanings. And so I have sort of two different questions. Like, first of all, I'm wondering why they would sign this letter because, to say the least, it doesn't seem like Elio was a feminist. And uh, and, and also... Well, pay before the today's standards. Mm. That's, that, that's interesting. Not back then, right? <laughs> yeah, may, maybe. And, like, that's why I'm looking to you to sort of describe the sociopolitical climate at the time. Because, like, the two questions I have are, like, a broad question about, like, okay, why would these folks sign on to this letter to defend the Gracies? And second, there there's some indication in your dissertation that Rosalina Coelho Lisboa trained with Carlos a little bit. And so I'm wondering if she's one of the first women that we know trained. Yes, let's start from, from the, you know, your... your by the end, yes, probably she was, right? At least one kind of uh, uh, famous one uh, that I can't remember. But uh, to understand why feminists are signing, signing uh, a petition to free the graces after the graces are condemned, right? In all kind of uh, tribunals, the local tribunals and then the highest, tri- like a Supreme Court, are condemned, right? Uh, find guilty of aggression. Uh, apparently, they really ambush uh, Manuel Rufino, like others. Manuel Rufino wasn't the only one, right? I just described a few uh, scenes of violence in the, in the, the, the streets of Rio uh, before, like uh, involving the Gracies. Brazilian culture, the macho culture, the street fights are very common, right? Mm-hmm. Still today. Right, so it's not big. Wasn't a big deal. Mm-hmm. That's what the lawyer tried to 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 claim, and it's a, a man thing. Uh, it's a man thing to do when you have 
jedno z tenjenih states, prezentini Evropi, so as women represent the upper class in Brazil, the women, the few women that really travel around, they are connected with trends, modern trends everywhere, so they embrace feminism. But it doesn't mean that they really have like an agenda like you have today of feminism. And also a particular, perhaps the character or the persona of Carlos Gracie. I call Carlos Gracie a cordial patriarch. But it's not the guy who are defending that to beating up women or treat women badly. On the contrary, right? On the contrary. So he promotes women's rights. He promotes jujitsu that the, the women must learn jujitsu to protect themselves. But on the private sphere, he like you know having relationships with women only for the sake of procreation. Two of the most interesting bits of the book are when you pro- you produce early advertisements that Carlos produces about if you want to solve your marital problems, put an armbar on your husband or submit your man with an armbar <laughs> instead of letting someone else kill him. He's better to have him armbarred than dead. And, and this type of marketing jiu-jitsu to women I find very fascinating, particularly for the time. Exactly. But you, if you go to the, the, the Brazil, you know, you don't find women there. It's just uh, for marketing purpose. Because at the time, that was, okay, this mother, that's okay, that sounds nice. That's politically correct, politically correct to say, well, let's say the women, let's say the women, let's protect the women. But it's a very patriarchal thing, right? And uh, one particular note that's very important, that I think there is rumors that Rosalina was involved, personally involved with Carlos Gracie. Mm. That also <laughs> helps to explain what Rosalina signed with Gracie's in the petition. That's kind of love affair or something between uh, Carlos, it's not surprising, right? Uh, between Carlos and Rosalina. And also, again, feminism in Brazil, like other things, are imposing top-down mm-hmm. uh, for the sake of a, a modern discourse. It doesn't really mean that they are, uh, feminism was something that born in Brazil from the demands of uh, uh, normal women, regular women in the streets, was something that they get that happened elsewhere, seems modern, and then they embrace the idea. And the authoritarian regime is very is interesting. That was Getulio Vargas, the dictator that gave the women the right to vote in Brazil back in 1934. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the thing. Mm-hmm. But women never vote because after 1934 and 1937, three years after, Brazil became a full-fledged dictatorship. Hey, Lourdes. Hey. What's your favorite organization in jiu-jitsu um that's an easy one it would have to be u.s grappling and actually i love them so much that i'm going to go to their ref training in january i know that they put on a lot of ref trainings because they're serious about the competitor experience i've actually gone to two of the ref trainings myself because i wanted to be really sure that i was a decent ref yeah i really like the way that they do the ref training one you can go to the ref training and you, you can get your training done but then they even kind of mentor you at one of the events, and so you um, you get to practice doing your roughing during real matches, and um, I really like that. 
U.S. Grappling is run by grapplers for grapplers. You can compete in the new year. Register early to get a break on price at usgrappling.com. Speaking of that, of the dictatorship, and like Brazil's gone through several authoritarian periods, there's one thing I wanted to absolutely be sure to ask you about because you interviewed Hobson Gracie for your dissertation, I believe. And Hobson, yes. I think, is one of the most fascinating Gracies, Henzo's dad, Hauf's dad. So in 1964, Hobson and Carlson are accused by the military government of being – of helping a leftist politician escape over the border to Uruguay. Now, apparently Carlson was – maybe believed in this stuff but wasn't as involved in Carlson was. But Carlson and a bunch of his group are arrested, tortured, and many of them are executed. And the rumor and the story – I've heard a couple different stories, one of which is in your dissertation, that um, the security forces have him arrested and tortured and they and they only get him out because either Elio Gracie has connections with the military regime or I've also concert, heard that Elio Vigio, who was one of Hobson's students and was with the special police, was able to – to get Hobson out when other people were, were actually killed. Is that true? Is that uh, is what I've said pretty accurate? Or what, what do you think happened there? Well, I met Robson once with the, uh, doing research for my dissertation, and I just met Robson like uh, uh, two weeks ago, a month ago, doing, you know, we are just interviewing Robson again for the Coast Guard. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. What's amazing at that Uh, army barrack of the uh, army 
police, the army police. In that, in that base, in that barracks, in the underground, there is the chambers of torture, torture and the dungeons of the dictatorship, right? Uh, Robson told me there was a rest, he, he was taken to there, to that particular unit of the army, what we very infamous know by the torture, people disappear, and people eventually die there. But Robinson told me that uh, a part of, besides the psychological torture, they didn't touch him. Oh, wow. Because they know Robinson Gracie was related, of course, uh, Elio Gracie especially. They had connections, only students in the police, you know, the security forces. Also, Elio Gracie was, he was very well connected with some, you know, higher uh, Hanks uh, army officer, which makes sense because the Gracies back in the 1950s, they were teaching jiu-jitsu, teaching jiu-jitsu in the army, right? Be, uh, before judo became the kind of martial, like I mentioned, the art martial of choice in the military, jiu-jitsu was the, 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 the martial art used in the self-defense in the army. So, of course, there are relations. Also, there are relations, close relations between the army officers and despite judo, I'm sorry, jiu-jitsu, the great jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu is a very elitist. At some point, these generals or colonels, the high rank, they are training on the graces. So, it happens not only with, uh, with Robinson, Robinson Grace, but other guys, they are like uh, high-profile figures or in very important families, you have uh, even people in the family of the military involved in, in the underground fight against the regime. Mm -hmm. And some, uh, some of them are protected. I think Robson was on, was on one of them. He told me personally, he, you know, they didn't touch him. The psychological, the screams, the noises, the, 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 the dark, uh, the, the isolation, and finally to release him. I, he, he said he claims that they tried to force him to to flat, then to have an excuse to kill him. Mm. But someone inside warned him, "Don't try to escape, because they are waiting for an excuse to kill you. Don't go anywhere. Even if they disappear, they leave you somewhere. Right? Don't go. Stay." And he did that, and after he was releasing, releasing the influence of uh, Elio, perhaps, like you said, other guys that are already working in the security apparatus in the dictatorship, like Eurovision. You know, I, I, I knew Eurovision personally, you know, uh, and then, uh, yeah, it's, it's possible. He also Elio Grace, right? I think he was uh, uh, the most important figure in that that uh, uh, release of, of Robson Grace. That's, that he told me last time, I mean, you just met, like, Weeks or one month ago. Mm -hmm. Hey, Devshaw. Yes, Betsy O'Donovan. Do you want to know the weirdest thing about traveling with you? Do I? You do. And here it is. It's that no matter where we are, you somehow always find a fellow Jiu-Jitsu practitioner. That's true. It may be my collection of dozens of Toro BJJ t-shirts. Or the ears. Yeah, the ears are also a dead giveaway. Um, so my favorite example of this might be when we were in Belize City uh, at the airport on our way back from our honeymoon. Do you remember? Absolutely. We were in the airport, and I saw a guy wearing a Gracie University shirt, and I came over because I was wearing a Toro BJJ shirt. And five minutes later, you were best friends. 
So if you want to make friends and influence people all over the world, go to ToroBJJ.com and get one of their three for $25 t-shirt deals or just one singular t-shirt, all of which will introduce you to foreigners wherever you go. Also makes it less awkward when you double up in the New York club. So there's no way that I can get to all the questions that I want to get to, and I, I, I really appreciate your time. Uh, but w- one of the things I wanted to give you an opportunity to explain to the listeners are you written, you've written that um, it took five decades for Brazilian jiu-jitsu to become a hybrid martial art. And I think I have an idea of what that means from reading your dissertation, but what, what, for the listeners, what do you mean by that? Well, I think because let's, let's call it a turning point, right? Because if you look in the evolution of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you follow the dissertation, because it's following like a, a chronological, chronological order, early 20th century, and the 1920s, the races, the 1930s, the clash with the Japanese immigrants under dictatorship. It's very important because the races are creating their image as a national icon back in the 1930s under dictatorship uh, was like jiu-jitsu, not jiu-jitsu. I mean, this is very, very interesting. The graces are famous, but the martial art wasn't. <laughs> not popular at all. But you see the sport being promoted by dictatorship as the you know uh, symbol of national identity. Soccer and the graces and jiu-jitsu being promoted, right? Like in, under the, the dictatorship. And then comes the 1950s, when the Greeks opened the first big dojo after the fight with Kimura, Ilio and Kimura, right? Mm-hmm. They get, they get the, 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 the momentum, and they opened the first state-of-art gym in downtown Rio. When they teach, basically, is a self-defense system. It's not jiu-jitsu you know today. That is a very common mistake. Oh, yeah, even to that effect, no. It's, a, it's an entire process that jiu-jitsu became what it, what it is today. There's a self-defense system. It's there. You put in the magazines, the newspapers. It's a, a self-defense system device to open class men to protect themselves in the wild realm of the streets of Rio de Janeiro. That, that, that's a tradition Brazilian history since the time of slavery, the back in the 19th century. The streets in Brazil are very dangerous. There is a famous anthropologist in Brazil called Roberto Amata. He say the realm of the streets is the realm of there is no law. Mm-hmm. It's a jungle. Because the Brazilian state never, ever could really protect their cit- citizens entirely in the streets. So the realm of the house is sacred, is safe, and the realm of the streets. So the graces, they're following that cultural trend in Brazil. They're, they're teaching their social social peers, because the graces, are, it doesn't matter if they're broken financially. Mm-hmm. They're still part of the upper class elite, right? And then they're teaching the self-defense system back in the 1950s. What's amazing, because the graces became the national icon back in the 1950s, promoting the no, they are promoting newspaper and the magazine in the entire country. And then Jiu-Jitsu remain a martial, obscure martial arts only brought by a handful of practitioners and a handful of dojos in the south side of Rio. <laughs> it's amazing. And 
Jill Dover is spreading everywhere, and the racist jiu-jitsu is there, or encroached in the south side of Rio de Janeiro, right? The self-defense system. Then come the 60s, when the judo sideline almost entirely the, the great jiu-jitsu. Because the military adopted judo. The world adopted judo right after the Olympics in Tokyo. Right? And then come the 1970s, when something happened there. And one uh, fundamental figure, there are two figures that highlight in that process of make Brazilian jiu-jitsu answer your question, a hybrid combat sport. Rawls Gracie and Carlson Gracie. That two guys. Carlson, why Carlson? Because Carlson was the first Gracie to really promote open the jiu-jitsu. Uh, that's the breaking in this mindset of teaching jiu-jitsu for upper class. Jiu-jitsu be became a martial art of middle class in Rio de Janeiro. For the first time in, in, in decades, let's see. So Carlson, because his persona, you know, his uh, mindset is a very different guy if you compare to Ilio persona, right? A bit following his father, Carlos, right? And that thing is open. He was a guy that's a very successful uh, in the public fights, the fighting, you know, the pride fighting stuff. So he, I think also was the one also incorporate techniques and things in this jiu-jitsu, this Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And uh, Rawls was the one. He is a guy, he's amazing, amazing. He was the, the most, let's say, uh, skilled or gracie back in the day, like the Carlson was. Uh, Carlson was about to retire, right? Like a, there's a different gap generation, uh, getting older and then uh, uh, Rawls rise up, and Rawls was very interested in this combination of techniques, getting uh, techniques on judo, for example. It's very important judo, right, for that. There's uh, incorporate techniques, the triangle choke is the one. I use the triangle choke as a symbol that shows that the Brazilian jiu-jitsu becomes a hybrid combat sport, incorporate techniques, sambo, right, so also is involved in sambo, involved in judo. Is I mean, it is it's part of his character. It's his personal, right? He was involved. He was trying to perfect the techniques, how to perfect the style. So I claim that because, of course, uh, Rawls Gracie untimely death, right? Untimely death stopped. But his contribution, his contributions were already there. The council and Rawls. So the next generation or the generation that tricks on Gracie picks from there, right? These innovations, these combinations, right? This hybridization. And I think that uh, explains better the modern, you know, the contemporary style of uh, BJJ, Virginia Jiu-Jitsu. Incorporate techniques and the 1970s and 98s are crucial to understand the development of the, the modern, let's say, contemporary Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, I, I use the, the Triangle Shoka as an example. We ask questions for the old guard. Every one of them, they don't know. Mm -hmm. They never heard of anything. It's a mystery. Of course, we know that technique was incorporated along others, 
the very recent development. Well, certainly Carlson and Halls leave a legacy that lasts, and you do a good job of explaining that. And you mentioned in the dissertation that even among jiu-jitsu people, Carlson was kind of radically informal at the time. Is, uh, yes, yes. Comparing to Edie Gracie, for example, you know, yes. Yes, it's a, they're very different. They're not, not surprised they are not. <laughs> they have some difference because, yeah, definitely, they, you know, it's a very different different persona as they say uh, uh, when you see for, for example Robinson and, and Carlson and this uh, this Carlos lineage they're different they're different you know so like very different you know for Elio Elio is something like more in the sense of the the, the rigid you know the discipline and everything something fit probably closer to for the conjure or something you know in, in terms of discipline and everything. What do you think Elio's contribution to the martial arts is compared to Carlson's contribution to the martial arts? Well, it's hard because uh, uh, different generations, right? In different contexts. I think Elio was instrumental in the beginning. Regardless, I'm not judging anything, right? And just say he was very important for just in the beginning, especially back in the 1930s. Like, like I said, is uh, well, uh, it was not easy uh, uh, the situation there when this confrontation with the Japanese uh, uh, martial arts, right? And then also again in the fifties was well, they decide because remember Carlos retired uh, well, back in the nineteen thirty. So uh, Elio, Elio and uh, George, let's uh, uh, talk about George Gracie too, they are instrumental in that very beginning in the time that, well, I don't know, if not for the Gracie's decision, I think based on their, you know, uh, mindset, like a uh, like, uh, collective mindset, I think uh, the more likely that, that the, the Jiu-Jitsu would, would be, it, they, they would embrace Judo instead of keep, you know, just uh, well, uh, in this independent path in the martial arts, right? So it was, was instrumental in that beginning and also again in the, in the 50s, in the 50s, right? And then Carlson comes later, just in the second part of the 50s and then the 60s and the 70s, right? Like, I think it's, it's each one in their time, they're extremely important for the and George, you, you, because you mentioned George, and I find George fascinating, let's talk about him for a second because he's one of the last of the, the, the original brothers actively fighting. He probably has more fights than, than any of them, and yet it, it appears that he sort of stops at some point. And are, are we sure why? Do we know that? Not exactly. That's something that I, well, uh, I didn't know. Uh, I, just, I just focus on, on, on George. Back in the 1930s, was, he was very important. He was fighting pretty much uh, everyone, right? <laughs> he didn't choose for opponents or anything that, you know, not a kind of uh, a strategy from the beginning, like Helio Grace tried to pick up a selective, you know, opponents or something like that, right? But he, uh, George was there fighting everyone. It's very important, you know, there's a, some 
um, let's say, uh, epic fight with the Japanese, right? And sometimes he won, sometimes he, he lost, right? But he was there fighting every wrestlers and, and Japanese, everybody. And also there is a very strong connection between George and the Japanese. Yeah, can you say a little more about that? Because I know he fought several Japanese fighters and also trained with them. Yes, Omori and also Joe Omori and uh, Takeuyano. They're very close. They're very close. They're very close. There is, some, of course, there's a strong relationship there. And uh, yes, it's exchange because people sometimes forget that is they're fighting, right? But they 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 have they 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 they, they interact all the time. So it's it's not that something is completely separate. Right. Oh, the Greece is here, the Japanese there. No, they have gone to the Japanese have come to Rio. There are Japanese teaching Rio too, like Joe Amari, and Yano also is there. So it's not exactly this polarization between the Japanese in Sao Paulo and the, Jap- the Greece in Rio. There is also Japanese in Rio. Right? And there is a very strong connection and they you know, they live together, they have dojos together, sometimes in the case of George Gracie and Yano, right? So yes, they're, they're together all the time. It is not, it's not that, 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 that the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Judo, they come along in the separate, total, totally separate ways, you know? There's a lot of, lot of contact, a lot of uh, probably and borrows and things that are going on there, <laughs> you know? All of that is fascinating, and, and you know, we talked before when we talked when, uh, in our previous interview about how important Yano was and Joe Omori. But one thing I found interesting in your dissertation is the um, the role of the Japanese Brazilians, the people who immigrated from Japan and identify as Brazilian and are born in Brazil. And because after a while, like when it almost becomes this nationalistic Brazil versus Japan thing, several of the Japanese Brazilians. Are like no no we're 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 Brazilian too and we want to fight these Japanese fighters as well and yes yes like Ono yeah like Ono said yeah like um, uh, uh, he make the, he make make a very clear statement in the fifties right when the in the background uh, the background of that uh, challenge between the Gracie and Kimura right mm-hmm. that's exactly yeah that's exactly what I was thinking of and it's it's a really fascinating attempt by a Japanese immigrant to diffuse this atmosphere of racial polarity at the time. Yes, yes, yes. Say, well, we challenge both. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> you should like to challenge for both. <laughs> Gracie and Kimura, I think this is an attempt to, like, to diffuse this angry, this angry, uh, let's say, rivalry, ethnic rivalry that's not, I think, the Japanese, they realize what's going on, right? And the Gracies insist they want to draw the entire F affair on the grounds of this nationalism, right? You think again, we think the, 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 the beginning of the 1950s, that's the atmosphere, that's the background, the historical context of the Tulio Vargas, the dictator was elected, and Brazil just lost the World Cup, the, the, the soccer World Cup in Brazil. <laughs> in Brazil. They lost their final to Uruguayans, right? So, yeah, there's a lot of things going on, and the Greeks try to capitalize. They, they try to profit from that, that background of nationalism, and the Brazilians are very hurt in their pride, right? <laughs> because they lost to, well, football, soccer in Brazil is a big thing, right? 
Now I think the Americans, wow, what's the big deal? <laughs> it's a big deal to lose the, the World Cup in Rio de Janeiro. Right? Definitely. So, and yeah, and that's an interesting backdrop to all this. And, and we didn't get to talk as much about these big fights between uh, Elio Gracie and the Japanese in, in the 50s, the last time we talked. Uh, and so Elio fights Kato. And uh, the first time, it's a draw. Mm-hmm. And then the next time, yes. Elio winds up choking him unconscious with a cross choke yes. from the guard. And this has to be Elio's signature win, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. So, Kator lost. And then the Japanese felt like, we'll have to do something. <laughs> the Japanese pride, right? <laughs> so, they bring out Masahiko. And then, so, they bring out Kimura Masahiko, who's among, a, among the best Kodokan Judo black belts of modern Japan, probably one True. of the best ever, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And, uh, well, at the time, Kimura was the kind of strange at Kodokan because, you know, he's doing exactly what <laughs> always the Kodokan was against it, I mean, the, the fighting for money or something, right? But, yes, definitely Kimura was a world-class uh, uh, black belt, of course, you know, some of the best of Kodokan. Even today, you know, Kimura's skill level is spoken of, and I want to talk about that on a couple of levels. So, first of all, the fight with with Elio Gracie. We hear a lot of different information about this fight, and I'm just wondering what where you think the truth lies about about this fight. Like, how big was the size difference between the two? And no, no, you're not so big. You know, I mean, of course, there is some difference, right? See, but it's not they they over over time they exaggerate exaggerate the difference of course for the sake to, to create a, some kind of narrative of like I call moral victory right well just a giant Japanese giant against Elio Gracie and well uh, even if uh, Elio Gracie lost I mean he put up some kind of resistance and 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 uh, almost like Kimura narrowly win the fight Right and things like that, but it's not. I think it was what 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 was uh, uh, Kimura crash Elio and the technical difference was huge, and the size difference is not that you know here. It's there, of course, in terms of weight, I guess, but not like perhaps I I just my guess right. I don't I don't I don't remember exactly, but perhaps ten. 15 kilos, I don't know, in pounds, how, how much. But, uh, uh, and of course, uh, Kimura was a, was a very athletic guy, right? He's a very strong horse. But, well, that's, that's <laughs> I don't know. Since Elio Grade accepted the challenge, right? Well, things is not the, the matter uh, of is fair or not. He, he accepted the fight, and that's it, you know? I think he, he, he declares later that he never expect to win the fight. He knows for the outset that you know he couldn't stand the chance against Kimura, right? But he did, and he did, he did for I think for many reasons. If, and, and they create, they 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 managed to create like the myth, right? Of uh, guy facing without fear the Japanese with huge and and at the end I think uh, the Greeks managed to capitalize the defeat right on their favor that's what after that they opened his big dojo in downtown Rio 
in the aftermath of the fight with Kimura, right? Because uh, there and the news and the press and everywhere, right? At yeah. the end, well, it's good for them. <laughs> right. This has just occurred to me, but like, you know, the Gracies have always been very good at marketing. And so it's very says, good. So it always. says a lot, right? So, so it says a lot that even after this defeat by Kimura, they're able to spin that into a, this huge academy in, the, in, in downtown Rio. It, it occurs to me thinking about the UFC, right? Because that changed modern martial arts when Hoist beats four guys in one night. And I always thought, well, okay, well, you know, they knew Hoist was going to win. But now I, I sort of wonder what would have happened had Hoist lost, and would they? Would that? Would, would the narrative of the moral victory? Would they have still been able to to spin that into into the narrative? Because Ken Shamrock was a big, scary looking man. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. But it's hard to tell. But anyway, they, I think they bet on Rice victory, and they well, <laughs> they were right. Everything worked. Under favor, and the end, of course, when the things are changed, and they uh, they realize that they did not could keep going on like that, right? Royce now is facing that other other guys coming, and uh, rules are changing too. So yeah, <laughs> it's time to <laughs> get out. So I mean, but then the the the, the UFC had the, the, this. Huge effect. This is a revolution in martial arts already because of the three, right? The three first UFC. So uh, they managed to do it again. <laughs> That's for me as a Brazilian again, right? Yeah. <laughs> again, yeah. Again, no. again, but yeah, this relationship is very important. How the races, they are very, they, they exploit, you know, this relationship on their favor and the press. They're very well known for that, this marketing stuff from the beginning, from the beginning. So back to the aftermath of the Kimura fight for a second, because I think people forget that Valdemar Santana, who of course later ends up fighting Elio Gracie, also fought Kimura, and Kimura yes. easily submitted Valdemar Santana. Yes. What does this yes. say about the skill level of Masahiko Kimura? Which is, well, it is a way, it is a, a kind of a, a different class of fighter, of course, in martial arts. There is no doubt. The, I think uh, Kimura had problem with, with Valdemar when he decided both for, you know, for like uh, uh, no barren road fights, right? So, yeah, it, it was a draw. When he decided to send a punch with Valdemar. I don't know if you heard about this fight. Uh, no, please tell me. Yes, it's a draw. Uh, they decide to, instead of only uh, go for, you know, uh, like a jiu-jitsu or judo fight, they decide to go for, like, a valetudo fight, right? <laughs> yes. And then it was, well, what, uh, that's the, the, the occasion uh, that the, the, when the Waldemar punched very hard and, and uh, Kimura, right? And Kimura really uh, almost get uh, uh, himself not now, but because Valdemar is more skilled in boxing, right, than Kimura, of course. So, yeah, he was in trouble, and then the, the, at the end, he narrowly escaped defeat, Kimura, right, and they declared a draw. Wow. 
got fired. So uh, Valdemar Santana, who doesn't get talked about as much as he deserves these days, I don't think, you, you wrote in the dissertation that the Gracie Dojo in downtown Rio was an elitist space where Afro-Brazilians were unwelcome as students, but Valdemar Santana was an exception. So I'm wondering, yes. why was this, and how did Valdemar get in, and is he the only prominent Afro-Brazilian student that we know of, of the Gracies at the time? Yes, I think Valdemar started that I heard, it's not in the dissertation, I think he was working for the Gracie's on kind of renovation, right? He, he worked with marble, granite stuff. That's I heard, it's from Bahia, you know, he worked in the, I think he was working in renovation, the Gracie's house or apartment at the time. It's something that started there. And then, you know, I think the guy like martial arts, I think he did something before, some judo or boxing back in Bahia. Right. And then, of course, working for the Gracie's, well, it was a natural, you know, he comes, you know, uh, get acquainted. And then just because of that, the Gracie's accept or invite Valdemar to work in the Gracie's dojo. Take care of the dressing, you know, the dressing room. Just, you know, cleans all the stuff like a janitor or something like that. And that's it. He, he, he enters in the grace realm, you know, and that, you know, for that, like a janitor or a worker or something like that. But because he, from the beginning, when he starts, okay, that's training, that's role or something, they, they, they well, they, they give this opportunity for Waldemar to show his potential. They realize that Waldemar uh, is a very skillful fighter. He was, well, going through the ranks and something, and then finally they, you know, accept Waldemar, but they, I think they never accept Waldemar as an equal, right? That's something. That, of course, it comes clear later. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that, about the aftermath of the Elio Valdemar fight, because speaking of race in Brazil and about the Gracies in the media, I think it's O Cruzeiro who writes after the fight that, well, Valdemar defeated Elio using techniques that Elio taught him. Therefore, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu won, which is so. Well, it's a kick. <laughs> Not Jiu-Jitsu at all. Sorry, <laughs> it's a kick in the head. <laughs> but what's happened is, is sort of it sort of unifies the themes that you talk about, where it's spinning victory out of the jaws of defeat and having this alliance with the media, who is a very valuable backer of the of the Gracies for many years, that sort of helps with the sort of, to win win the spin battle in the aftermath, right? Yeah, yes. I think, I think yeah, the only thing that Valdemar grabbed, you know, like Elio, over his head, like that, and throw Elio, and just a kick in his head, and that's it, it finished. Uh, so it's not, I'm not sure if it's any jujitsu there. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, they, well, the guy is uh, diceable, the student that turns against, you know, his master, or his, you know, <laughs> something like that. They got try to portray Voldemar as in great, you know, uh, treasonous, in great, the guy who was turned against, you know, Elio. So, oh, well, I think also the black who dares to challenge, you know, <laughs> Elio Grace, that's, I think, uh, it's a very, I think that that's the point, the entire point, and the reason of the the, the fallout, right, between them, is something that you know there are people. Well, the guy is a poor guy who tried to make uh, some pride fight fightings, right? And Elio, I think, is he, 
just uh, uh, he didn't say he, he said no you can because there are some kind of fixed fighters involved I'm not sure there is a lot of debate uh, the, uh, if uh, whether Vladimir uh, uh, would get involved in fixed fighters or not but the, the problem is the you know the the result because when they start the discussion the hit the hit discussion I think inside the do dojo well, well, it became very clear that Ilio uh, kicked Guadamar uh, uh, out of dojo on the, the, this floor of racial, racial uh, slurs, right? Uh, very clear. And so that pretty much, in, in uh, that seems to, to be, to put a cap on the Gracies in the 50s. Um, it is, it, and and it, that's Elio's last fight, I believe. Yes, 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 definitely was, was the last one. And then in the 60s and 70s, the, like we mentioned that the Gracies had allies in the media, but for whatever reason, the Gracies and Jiu-Jitsu's presence in the media seems to vanish in the 60s and 70s. Do, do you have any theories about why this is? Yeah, like I, I, I told, you know, uh, in my dissertation, uh, uh, there's a combination of things. It's not one fact only, it's a combination of things. And, well, again, I have to go back, you know, the historical context from Brazil at the time, in the early 60s, right? First, uh, in, in 1964, after the military coup, it's very clear that the populism was gone in Brazil for a while, right? And then the Greeks always benefit from, you know, the populist regimes. Populist regimes, they need heroes. Of course, not only the Greeks, but the soccer players, athletes, celebrities and stuff and the greatest since uh, since 1930s they are gradually becoming a national icons in Brazil right regardless I mean that's in the despite Brazilian jiu-jitsu as a very elitist martial arts uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu remain only uh, the, the martial art that you, have, you only find dojos in the film the this upper class neighborhoods in Rio de Janeiro but still, the Greeks are very popular. They're very well known. They're in the front page of newspapers. They are in the news, uh, front page of the, the magazines in Brazil, the high circulation magazines everywhere. When, when they come to the military first, the Greeks are facing a very uh, troubled times uh, in the private sphere. There's a, there is a lawsuit against them. Well, Oscar Santa Maria, you know, one guy wipeout from the Gracie narrative, official narrative, the very important for the Gracies from the beginning, very important in the partnership with uh, uh, Carlos Gracie, especially Carlos Gracie. He, uh, he filed a lawsuit against, against Carlos in Ilio. Uh, you know, for, for a number of reasons, stuff uh, like plagiarism, uh, well, you know, the, uh, there's a lot of allegations there, and there is a very, is a very, uh, is, is was there in the newspaper uh, almost every day, the exchange of accusations between Carlos and Ilio and Oscar Santa Maria, which was a, is a very influential guy in Brazil. Was, was this the spiritualist guy? Exactly, that's the one. That's the one. He was minister in one of the Getulio Vargas, briefly, and also a high hang, I'd say, the government official in the Bank of Brazil. This is a state owned state bank in Brazil, right? This is a very important guy with a lot of money. 
And there is a very close and strange relationship there, say at least, between, you know, Carlos and Oscar de Santa Maria involved a lot of stuff, including spiritual stuff. You know, the spiritual stuff, this shamanic uh, kind of religion sect that uh, first started with Santa Maria and then Carlos, and Carlos eventually became a guru of a group of people, right? Including Oscar de Santa Maria. But the problem is it kind of, it's going on in the 1930s, 1940s, the time when the Carlos moved to Martins, Brazil, accusing of espionage, right? Um, and with, uh, along with uh, Oscar, Oscar de Santa Maria, uh, comes the Grace book that I think uh, was something written by Oscar de Santa Maria, right? Not by Carlos, right? And then uh, this relationship and business relationship, but at the end, the 1963, I guess, right? Just before the coup, there is a, there's there, there's a scandal. The newspaper. I was wondering what the outcome of the lawsuit is, or do we know? Is it just that there's a lot of accusations in the press, or is there any resolution? Does somebody win? Does somebody lose? I think they, at the end, they, they find, like, like us, set, uh, 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 they settle something, right? At the point of the, one of the most important uh, newspapers, the owner of the most important newspaper in Brazil, Global, the global organization was still, you know, around, it's a very powerful in Brazil. They, they, they call Carlos and Santa Maria trying to defuse the situation because he knew both and he knew the damage that could be done, you know, that some surface stuff, the very intimate stuff sometimes, you know, that's the relationship between uh, Carlos and Oscar Santa Maria. So they try to defuse, but then they, you know, they still going on fighting and, you know, court. I think at the end, they, they settle something between them, right? But the damage is done already. You now, the scandal there, the, I think for the military in Brazil, it's not a good thing. The military in Brazil, especially the army, was, a, you know, the, a, 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 he was the most important branch of both uh, armed forces in Brazil. He was the one who, you know, uh, who took power in 1964. Uh, that's something bad, right? That's something bad for their very rigid and the morals and ethics and, and everything. And I, I don't think the Grace's mindset, this flamboyant behavior of Grace, unruled sometimes. The Grace, they turn grass, they turn grass very often. <laughs> they step on the boundaries very often, you know, in their private, <laughs> private life. And the public, you know, also the public, uh, public sphere as well. That's not goes well with the, the with the military thinking in terms of moralization of the country or something like that. That's so just one aspect. One aspect. You mentioned earlier that it's difficult to explain to American students the political and class and race realities of Brazil in the same way that it's difficult to explain to a Brazilian uh, who hasn't lived in America the, the same in America. One of the things that I find interesting about your, your dissertation is you describe – it's clear that for most of its history, jiu-jitsu was an elitist martial art that was for the rich, that was targeted at them, that the Gracies were pretty well connected with most of the, the regimes in Brazil, particularly the authoritarian ones. And so when I think of violence, 
And and yet, at the same time, jujitsu was identified for a lot of this with street hooliganism, of like guys going out and getting in street fights and beating up people. And this may be a difference between Brazil and the U.S., but when I think of politically connected elite people in my country, I think of people that would never get in a fight in their lives if there weren't five guys holding the other guy down. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and so it's interesting to me to think of, bo- of this in that – because both of these things seem to be true um, in, in terms of the history of the Gracies, that they were very well connected, that they taught jiu-jitsu to doctors, lawyers, government officials, bankers, people that were really well off, but, but also – you had this sort of hooliganism that came, became associated with jujitsu, and is that a is that is that a, do I have that right? Is that a contradiction? What, what does that say? Yes. Well, at, for one, is 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 a that is a current contradiction there. But if you dig into Brazilian reality, uh, I think is uh, the graces are follow like uh, it's a pattern there. Right. So again, the domain of streets in Brazil are, are, are uh, since the beginning, right? Since the beginning, uh, are like uh, a realm of uh, the state cannot enforce, like it happened right now. You see, you know, Rio de Janeiro is under federal intervention right now. Oh wow! Yes, means that the police, uh, the police, you know, uh, the uh, police. You know, the, different kinds of police in Rio de Janeiro, law enforcement is no longer can control the situation in Rio. So a few days ago, the government, the federal government decided to intervene, you know, to send the army to patrol the, the streets of Rio. <laughs> That's one thing. It's happening right now. So they're going to favelas. The army is there, the Marines and the, the the, the military, special force, they are now in the streets of Rio because the police can no longer control the situation. So the state of Brazil has is historically, you know, difficult to control the realm of the streets in Rio. So meaning the, in, when, when you are the, out on the streets, you are by your own. <laughs> it's it's some, pretty much like this, right? So yeah, the elite in Brazil, uh, upper class in Brazil, they fear the streets because they know the streets are no world. You have to defend yourself, right? You don't 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 count on the state or the protection or anything because they are not there <laughs> for you. So uh, I I think the, the this culture of the elite elite try to well I think think the gracious thing. They advertise that. They advertise. They advertise the uh, uh, to the this upper class, giving them a tool to defend themselves in this rural realm of the streets in Brazil, which also comes with the cultural Brazil, the macho culture, which uh, is not exactly that's a kind of transgression admitted or accepted, socially accepted. When the man they fight in the streets is not necessarily bad, right? Because you have the rights to fight. This is something maybe hard to explain for the orders. The right in U.S. to bear arms, right? <laughs> so for others, it's a lot of people there they can understand, you know, why the Americans they insist the, the, the right to bear arms. And in Brazil, well, they insist in the rights of Brazilians go for fist fighting and not necessarily back in the streets, right? That's a kind of contradiction because 
Brazil, there's a lot, a lot of contradiction in Brazil between tradition and modernity. So we usually, we, uh, we are product of the clash in Brazil between tradition and modernity. And uh, jiu-jitsu is not an exception in this sense, right? But there one question that, the uh, previous question, but uh, uh, I think it wasn't clear, just partially explained why the graces are on the sidelines during the, the dictatorship in the 60s, in the 1960s. That's one thing that is a scandal now in the private sphere. Also, I think I, I, also I mentioned that before, is the Kodokan Judo is became you know, a global trend. The Olympics in Tokyo in 1964, the American military, some branches of the American military adopting Judo. I, so you can ask me what they had to do with Brazil, because Brazil is getting closer to America, you know, the American influence in the times of Cold War, Cuba, the crisis and everything. So the, when Brazil became a military dictatorship, there's a close relationship between exchange between the military in Brazil and the military in the US. And judo was a martial art of choice in some American military branch, right? So from that exchange via Japan and via US, that's interesting. Judo became the martial uh, art of choice of Brazilian military too. And unlike the Graces, the judo preached some kind of, it's a very different thing, right? The rigid, the discipline, you know, collective instead of individual. There's no room for this flamboyant behavior, right? Transgression, anything. I think that's why judo became very close connect to the military rule. And then the graces are for the I think for the first time in decades, I think offered or the, the, the limelight, right? <laughs> they they are in the background, right? In the sixties, and then the judo is became what you know. There is a world championship in world, world tournament in Brazil. I think back in nineteen sixty five, Brazil hosts uh, the, the world championship in, 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 in Rio. This that's a very salient point, and I think it's really interesting. It fills in some gaps for me for uh, in terms of the transition from jujitsu to judo in the military. You know, we, we talked in our earlier conversation about the role of of, of early, women training early on with the Gracies, and we mentioned a couple of them. Do we have any idea? Do we have a sense of how many women trained early on in jujitsu? It had to be a very small percentage. Oh yeah, probably almost no. Only for uh, advertising. Purpose. You see, um, you can uh, um, go back to the 50s. You see one uh, in the Cruzeiro magazine. See, you, you see pictures of women in the Gracie's Dojo. But I mean, that's a thing that, again, like in the 30s, again, the 50s, there's something not to show uh, to portray the Gracie's who are very progressive, <laughs> a very progressive individuals, but only for. Advertising purpose. I think the women are not there, are not seen, uh, not training, rolling, or anything like that. It's just for uh, the videos and uh, uh, put the pictures in the magazine. They are not there. They are not there. And it's very clear that even you know more re very recently when the first Grace, uh, let's say. Uh, uh, 
competitor in the, in the, in the level that uh, I think is Kira Gracie. Yeah. He probably faced a lot of resistance in the beginning, a lot of criticism from the Gracies. I mean, from the Gracies, from the family. I was actually going to ask about Kira specifically because Kira in the Henzo Gracie documentary says nobody in her family would teach her jiu-jitsu until Henzo agreed to, and that's why she and Henzo exactly. have such a bond. So, Renzo is a, you know is a newer generation, so some things have changed, right? But for, yeah, yeah, I totally believe it because uh, I think there are some interviews that I think you can find out there that think the Ida Gracie is criticized. Participation of the Gracie when I'm in so it's very clear, it's another generation thing. So, yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> so, so, we've talked about some people that are, if not forgotten figures in martial arts history, at least don't get the credit they deserve. I'm wondering, have we left anyone out that is either one of your favorite grapplers or favorite contributors to the martial arts in Brazil and the world that maybe gets ignored because of the, the dominant oh, narrative? Well, uh, there is, a, there is a few names out there, right? And, um, you know, uh, now is, uh, it, that, that's a difficult thing because, and uh, I, I always, uh, I, I feel like uh, uncomfortable in the world uh, uh, being, well, you are celebrating the graces who are, who are criticizing the graces, who are a grace hater, or a grace like, uh, as, as kisser or something that, but no, it's not. I mean, uh, so for all, I I have to give them credit for the what happened to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in terms of promotion, in terms of or uh, let's say the resilience to resist this trend, this incredible trend of uh, judo, especially post-war judo, right? And there is a people there. There are people doing. Uh, there's a few people like you know in the documentary Coast Guard. They will show probably the guys uh, doing jujitsu in the suburbs of Rio, you know. Uh, so and the other a few of the guys here and there in São Paulo and other states. You have a wrestlers also very important wrestlers there. But I think in the at the end, Jeff, uh, 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 let's. It's hard in history to say what if, right? The what if, well, I think it's pointless. But at, well, you can say that what if is not the Gracies and the other guys, those are vanish or those uh, doing jujitsu in the suburbs of Rio. What will happen to Brazilian jujitsu? Probably, you know, nobody ever. We heard there is no such thing like. Uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu be practiced in any uh, US in the world. If not, you know the Gracies, uh, they they really they take the lead. So, uh, but yes, there are people like I said. We you can know, you can you you can mention Joe Amore in the beginning, back in the 1930s. Iano also in the 30s in the post-war in Japanese. Other guys who also uh, 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 George Gracie, the Gracie family is the one is. Almost vanishing the narrative, almost you know, wipe out on the narrative. The Jiu Jitsu is very important, very instrumental. He goes everywhere in Brazil, spread Brazilian Jiu Jitsu along with along, along with Ano, Iano. Uh, let's say, well, Wadamas Santana is another guy in the 50s, very important. Other Gracie students are very important in the time. And people usually forget, for example, João Alberto Barreto, he, he was the number one, he, was, he wasn't Carlson. 
was João Alberto Barreto. He was the number one in the Gracie Dojo. And when they, they, they get together to decide what to do next after the Ilhos defeat for Waldemar, they have, they have to choose one guy not to stand up and revenge, take revenge what happened to Waldemar. So uh, they like, I think they organized uh, like an internal, internal tournament. And John Beth Barreto was the one. He beat Carlson Gracie, the great Carlson Grace, but because his own family must be someone Gracie, right? To revenge, to take revenge, right? So, but he was the one, he was the number one. And the other guys uh, that I tried to remember, but again, uh, at the end, you almost come to, you know, to the fact, it's, it's fact that the Gracie's, the Gracie's the ones leading the way all the time, right? So they are there and they are those who take jiu-jitsu to West and so they are responsible, they are uh, at the helm of the entire process. But there's a lot of names out there along the way. Of course, you talk about decades, you know, of history in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, there are names there. Uh, I think they were worth mentioning then, of course, uh, just the uh, sake of justice or something like that. They're very important, even George, right? And uh, Gracie and the others and the Japanese in the beginning, they're very important, extremely important. And, uh, but, well, there are not many names. You can make a list of names that uh, people are completely anonymous that people never heard. They're very important. So I just have one more question. Uh, you know, we've covered a lot of material and I really appreciate your giving so much of your time to me to talk about this stuff. So everybody who's listening to this is going to be, I think, at least interested in jujitsu history, right? And and so I'm curious, is there one message or takeaway? If you could make sure everybody listening to this hears that message, what, what would that message be? Brazilian jiu-jitsu is, is, is more like a collective process uh, in the making that there's a lot of people. Again, you, you ask me if there are people that were to mention. There's a lot of people out there. They, they are also very important in the process. There is no one single uh, person that is responsible for uh, what Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has become at the time. It's a, it's a collective. There's a lot of work of different people that usually they, they, they will be always a, a no in the process. It's a collective. It's a collective process. The make of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is a work of so many people, right? And still going on. It's a work in progress, right? So we see, uh, uh, I think it's early at this point to to say, because you talk about the future now, uh, what the directions we're taking uh, uh, for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in the U.S. and the world. That's that's one thing important. Uh, I I would like to go further in my research in completely different place, right? For example, I had projects, so I'm still waiting for some kind of something's going on there will happen. I, I, I would like to, to, to do research and the expansion of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, for example, in the Middle East. I would like to, 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 to do research and expansion of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, for example, in Russia, you know, you know in the, the former Republics of Soviet Union, the Caucasus, that region. That's something fascinating. Oh, the, 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 the expansion of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in China and stuff like that. That's how I want to go, right? So again, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is a work in progress. There's a lot of people. It's a collective. It's a collective, a collective work 
rather than individual, done by individual, that someone that invented or invented anything. That's the first thing. The second thing, I mean, uh, well, um, we are ten, we are inclined to judge a lot, you know, to issue, you know, to judge people. And well, I think for well, uh, is is something in Brazil. It's hard to say. Like like I, I I mentioned so many times in the beginning of the dissertation, I'm part of this, right? So there are a lot of good stuff about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and there are some kind of negative aspects. We are, you know, I think we are the ones who are just. I think you have to always keep what is good about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and make it better. And so maybe you think twice about the negative aspects and try to erase them. You know, or try to, to make it better, to improve some things. I don't know. I, I cannot, I cannot uh, foresee in the future. But is the process going on? It, to me, is 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 fascinating the way the, the inroads taken by the relationships in the US and in the rest of the world. But that's that's the thing. That's my thoughts <laughs> about uh, a Brazilian thing that like exported worldwide. I mean, it's a, it's a, like I say, it's a Japanese Brazilian thing that was part of worldwide. And see what 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 will happen in the future? I, I I it's hard to tell, but it's something going on. It's changing. You guys are part of this. Well, I know you've inspired a lot of our academic listeners. Like, you know, wait, I can do a dissertation about this stuff. This is awesome. And yeah, so, yeah, which is another yeah, thing you yeah, wouldn't necessarily so, think was possible before. But uh, oh, there is nothing to be done. There's a lot of stuff to be done. Uh, but again, when you start something, uh, well, there's good things and bad things. I think I I, I pay uh, I I kind of pay a, like a you know a heavy price for that to start something. Uh, people not not take seriously my work or say you know because you know Brazilian Jiu Jitsu what's that you know. <laughs> well, maybe, well, well, you know, maybe you started a trend, and I hope you did, because uh, there's a lot. You you mentioned just a few of the aspects that are out there to be studied, like the the 19th century Japan stuff, the expansion, the Middle East stuff is fascinating. The expansion of jiu-jitsu worldwide into places like China is fascinating. I I trained with the Palauan Olympic Judo team, and they were like, "Show us some jiu-jitsu." I was a blue belt. People are, are hungry for the stuff, and the dissemination of it worldwide is is something that's really interesting. And I think the idea that you put out there about it being a collective process of co-creation is something that I think is so applicable to this particular art. Yeah, and see, you know, this this, this symbiosis, this connection between Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and some place like become, you know, part of the, the scholar, you know, the school curriculum, the school curriculum, like in, in Abu Dhabi, in a place like that. So the kids are, since, you know, the kids are, Doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in the school or something like that, and of course you know the, uh, the, that uh, connection between Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and manliness, the, uh, the, uh, the, the relation between Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and nationalism, and things like that. That's that's I want to go further and to study, you know, do research and that things uh, about how that Brazilian Japanese martial art became you know part of the people's life. In so different place, right? In different purpose and stuff. So yeah, <laughs> definitely, it's, it's fascinating. It's a lot of people, a lot of stuff there. I would say, you know, people, wow, I study Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So yeah, it's a lot of stuff to be done. Of course, this is just the beginning. <laughs>
extremely grateful to Jose Tufikairus for taking the time to talk us through the complicated, fascinating history of jiu-jitsu. If you want to learn more, you can check out his dissertation at dirtywhitebelt.com, and you can be sure to watch for the book. You can also follow Robert Drysdale's Closed Guard documentary on social media until it releases in full form before the end of this year, and I absolutely encourage you to do so. Thanks to all of you for hanging in with us through this move. We're out in Bellingham for good now, and we can't wait to get back to regular podcasting. This is Dirty White Belt Radio. My name is Jeff Shaw, and we'll see you at the Worlds next week. Thank you.